0: Ooh, now I'm so curious, you're driving me crazy.
1: Welcome, friends, and thank you for listening to this seventh episode of 119, a Twin Peaks podcast. My name is Nick. I am joined as always by Dylan. Hi Dylan.
0: Hi. Hello. Hello. How are you Nick?
1: Oh, I'm great. I'm ready to talk about part 7. There's a body all right. Frustratingly spelled weird. <laughs> like there's a body a l l space r i g h t which like it's sort of like uh the next episode got a light g o t t a light it's just like why right, like
0: like got too light <laughs> like i have got to light this cigarette yeah i don't know this is actually like the i thought they did pretty well with the just like pulling a an episode title from a line of dialogue mm-hmm. but this one was uh this one's hand fisted this isn't not the best one
1: <laughs> no i think very few of them are very good quite frankly like got a light that makes sense because that's like that's like arguably like the signature catchphrase if you will like of the entire season but um, sure yeah. yeah whatever i think in a, in a few episodes there's laura is the one which i think is pretty cool yep but yeah these episode titles very very hit or miss so yeah this the, we we talked last episode about how despite the fact that this episode was largely conceived as an eighteen hour uh film if you will each episode seems to have its own character and I think that this episode is uh I wouldn't describe it as like fan service per se but there are a lot of of shout outs and allusions to the original run of twin Peaks that I think for for big fans of the original Twin Peaks, you just you, it just made you really excited to hear about them, like the diary pages, and you know seeing Doc and uh, just all that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, it it takes you you get a lot of I think for the first time we get some of the themes back from the original run, like the the doom and gloom theme. I think this is the first episode that you hear that. Um, we get a lot of great northern, we get some horn action, but yeah. I, uh, we also get some setup for part eight, and some setup for some of the weird uh, timeline screwiness that we encounter as as the season <laughs> moves on. Uh, and I think this is our first dose of Billy, is it not?
1: Uh, I believe I believe it is the first mention of the mysterious Billy, uh, who looms large over the season from this point forward. Yeah, so.
0: But yeah, this one, this one is, um, I, I I enjoyed this one, I think, more than probably the last couple, just because of how many, how many very interesting moments that we'll talk about.
1: Yeah, this is definitely one of the episodes that I remember people responding the most positively towards as the season was airing. I think probably because, like we mentioned, of the the callbacks to the original and the fact that. This is just a more plot-centric episode than some of the past ones that we've seen. Like, we really get several threads pushed forward in a significant way. uh, And in a way that doesn't always happen on every single episode of this show. Yeah, it's it's, it's a great episode. Without any further ado, let's talk about it. Part 7. There's a body,
0: alright. Laura never met Cooper. He came here after she died, didn't he? She said that these words from Annie came to her in a dream. This thing she said, the good deal is in the lodge and can't come out. But Harry saw Cooper come out of the lodge with Annie that night. Uh, Doc and Harry took him over to the Great Northern. But
1: if the good Cooper is in the lodge and can't come out, then The one who came out of the lodge with Annie that night was not the good Cooper. So we open, of course, on Jerry Horn, Lost in the Woods. He looks around for a while. We learn that he thinks that someone stole his truck. He gives Ben Horn a call and I I love Ben's reactions to Jerry because we get just a couple great editing moments of just cutting to Ben in the Great Northern, and he just goes, What? <laughs> 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 because Jerry is just rambling to him about how he thinks he's high and he doesn't know where he is, and someone stole his truck. And uh, I
0: love how he goes, Someone stole my truck. And uh, Ben's like, What? Someone stole your truck? And Jerry goes, you said the same thing. <laughs> it's just such like a ridiculous. Uh, I, I feel like I've been in his mind state before. you <laughs> hear like a shell of a person like on drugs, like, Oh no, what is happening? He seems like he's a little more than high.
1: Yeah. He's, he's definitely, uh, he's like at peak stoner paranoia. I would say, you know, maybe just being yeah. alone in the woods is, is, exacerbating this effect for him. But
0: yeah, it's, it's as if he just realized, hold on a second. I'm in the woods. Yeah. Is that, this is the woods, right? He <laughs> spent a yeah. 30 seconds staring at it. Yeah, this is the woods. Yeah. He, ben.
1: He's all alone. And uh, it would be terrifying if you were out in the middle of the forest and you lost your truck.
0: So I think these scenes of, of Jerry Horn lost in the woods, I believe that this is all just simply set up for him being in the time and place to witness the death of Richard Horn. I think mm-hmm. I can't see any other significance to it.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's. This is all just leading to him eventually witnessing uh, the death of Richard, which in itself isn't really that significant um, because it doesn't it doesn't really lead anywhere. Like the fact that Jerry sees Richard die doesn't really affect anything. I, I th- yeah, it doesn't. I, yeah, no consequence. I, yeah, I think that just Jerry in this season is supposed to be. Um, just uh, comic relief, essentially, and um, just a depiction of a man who's you know just searching, you know, and, and who's lost. I think that's how David Lynch actually explains Jerry Horn to David Patrick Kelly in some of the behind-the-scenes stuff. He's just like, you know, you're 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 lost, and you're you're wandering, and you're searching. D- Jerry Horn is just um. To me, is just a a great bit of of flavor in this season. Um, You know, I'd I'd agree as as a lot of stuff is because there's a lot as we will see later in this episode that doesn't isn't particularly germane to the plot, but is still really great in my opinion. So, really enjoy this intro, and uh, from there, we get to some pretty significant stuff here. In the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station, where Frank and Hawk are taking a look at some of the diary pages that Hawk found in the restroom. And what he finds is that these pages contain Annie's dialogue from Firewalk with Me, where she shows up in Laura's bed and You know, tells her, you know, the good Dale is in the Lodge, can't come out, write this in your diary, etc. And this is just some good Twin Peaks shit. Just the hairs on the back of my neck were standing up as they were taking a look at this. Just because we haven't, we haven't really, Laura hasn't really been a presence on this show since like the second episode. And so... Just to get, like, um, like a tangential g- glimpse into the life of Laura Palmer in this episode was just, like, really exciting in the moment, I felt like.
0: Laura, the, the, Laura, the mystery, or Laura Palmer's murder, the mystery, sort of, you know, or, or most definitely in the second season of Twin Peaks became somewhat of an afterthought. And... Um, up till this point, you know, we see Laura in the, in the red room in I, I think part three, we see her in part one, but up to this point in the plot, she has not really been, um, central or like her mystery hasn't necessarily been central. And I love that we see that. And I just love that the return in general is the return of that original mystery that David Lynch had, you know, that he kept referring to as like the golden goose. Um, And they made him kill the golden goose by by solving that mystery. He found a way somehow to inject, you know, Laura Palmer back into the plot in a way that where we thought it was all wrapped up neatly with the bow. We see it is actually not the case at all. And I think that in in Twin Peaks, we get a lot of we, the viewer, get a lot of instances of things that are out of time and out of place but the characters don't necessarily all the time so just to watch hawk and truman reckon with the fact that laura seemingly knew about two people that didn't come to town until after she died it's really it's like now you know that things are going to start cooking and but I was the same way. I kind of I got those those chills as well, um, just thinking about how it all came full circle. Which is again another another example of uh, <laughs> just things sort of repeating themselves endlessly in Twin Peaks.
1: Absolutely, and Lynch has a way with Twin Peaks where every time you feel like the show has gotten far away from the Laura Palmer mystery and Laura Palmer as a character he really draws you back into that and brings her back to the forefront and reminds you, you know, just as he did to the frustration of pretty much everybody at the time in firewalk with me. And again, in the finale of this season, that Laura, her trauma, her story really is the beating heart of this show. And I just, I really appreciate that time and time again, lynch is there to remind us of that
0: yeah i think this show could have become very mundane if it was a sort of you know mystery of the month that gets solved or if this third season ended up being a completely separate uh, different blue rose case that maybe in the last episode ties together i love that it it, it very much is uh, lynch is unyielding in his at least a version of his original vision uh, for what Twin Peaks is. And I sort of love, you know, as we see with a lot of the the stuff with Norma and the double R and her pie recipes, his, you know, he, he has this chip on his shoulder almost uh, for not compromising and not doing that and not quote unquote changing the recipe and making it more homogenous for a more wide audience. So you can make more money. Um, you can tell that he really, he takes a lot of pride in, telling the, the story the way that he intended to. And that after all these 25 years, that's actually why now he has like the clout and the, uh and apparently the, the limited but budget to tell that story. And I don't know, it, it's, it, it's definitely a huge part of why this series or this season has been. So uh just kind of like spellbinding to so many people.
1: For sure. And I think that if Lynch was primarily interested in, bringing in new people to Twin Peaks then just presenting us with another dead girl, another possible Blue Rose case probably would have been the easiest way to do that. And for a while, it looked like that's what we were going to get. You know, when we find Ruth Davenport's, Ruth Davenport's head in the first episode, that that's definitely what I was thinking. Like, the Ruth Davenport mm-hmm. murder is going to be like, the central mystery of the show and it wasn't and i'm i'm grateful that lynch was able to stick to his guns and again just remind us that laura laura is the central character of twin peaks in a lot of ways so like i mentioned there's there's a lot of weirdness in terms of continuity here and i'm just gonna say up front that i don't have a 100% firm grip on it. Every time I try to read about this, my head starts to melt a little bit, but I think suffice to say, there are some timeline issues that I think we can probably just chalk up to a mistake on Mm -hmm. Lynch Lynch and Frost's part. Uh, Namely, due to the fact that these pages contain Annie's dialogue from firewalk with me when we know that Laura gave her secret diary to Harold Smith before this dream. Like we, we know that we know that for, for absolutely certain.
0: I was trying to, yeah, I was trying to remember exactly the, the chronology of firewalk with me and like when, when she gives it to Harold Smith, when Leland finds it. And then when she has the dream, I just don't remember what order all that happens in.
1: Yeah. Correct. Correct. So so, uh, the other thing that that complicates it is the fact that we know that Donna also got some pages from Harold from Laura's diary that she gave to to him saying that, you know, today is the day that I die, etc. So, Mm -hmm. like, the only way that you can really make sense of all this is if you believe that Laura went back to Harold's house the day that she died and wrote more in her journal <laughs> um, hmm. before she died. But even yeah. then, but even then, like how would Leland have gotten these pay? Like it just, it doesn't quite add up. And also there's some, there's some screwy stuff involving the fact that the pages that Hawk pulls out of the bathroom door in no way resemble the pages that we see like physically see in laura's Mm -hmm. diary in the original run like these pages in season three appear to be from like almost like a yellow notepad and yeah it's like a legal pad looking yeah and the the way that they're ripped is totally different like they're ripped along a perforated edge whereas in laura's diary and firewalk with me we see that they've been they've been just sort of haphazardly ripped on the page part itself. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. if if you wanna if you wanna go ahead and say that this has to do with alternate timelines and the unofficial version, etc., I guess you could really go ahead and knock yourself out with that. But personally I'm 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 just willing to acknowledge that Lynch and Frost probably just just made some some errors in continuity here and uh, honestly i'm i'm really i'm not too upset about it
0: yeah i'm not uh, of all things in this show continuity is not the one where i'm like hanging my hat on uh yeah i i did not do the level of research uh that you did but it i just i i just i was remembering in my head like that all of those things had happened and that I just didn't know what order they were going in, and I don't remember. But Fire Walk with Me does, as a as a film, move pretty much chronologically, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's just like the last week of Lara's life. Mm-hmm. So whatever we're given, we, we uh, you couldn't make the case that well we were seeing it out of order. But I I am not uh, shaken by this, especially because it its plot implications for the Return are there and the, pretty much clear as day, which is really all i'm looking for yep like i don't need it i don't need it to like fit like a uh you know fit like a glove into the mold of of season two like this weird um you know like when certain shows do that when they'll call back to some obscure random thing from like way 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 earlier that no one would think anything of and Mm -hmm. it's like yeah who cares just uh just tell a good story
1: yeah, I don't I don't really care that much. Like I said, I did some research on this and just wasn't really able to come to any great conclusions. Um but if if, if anybody does have any thoughts about this, you know, please do uh write into us and tell us because uh I, I am interested in that.
0: Yeah, very much so. I think a lot a lot of doing this podcast for me too has been about trying to get at, at some of those little like weird discrepancies that I had the first time around. So, any and all feedback please by all means
1: yeah absolutely so let's stick around with frank for a little bit here um we see him speaking with a couple old friends in this episode we get uh, a pretty affecting scene i think of him talking on the phone with harry who we know from lucy has been sick and frank has some heartfelt words for his brother he tells him you know you're gonna beat this thing i don't think we ever learn exactly what harry's ailment is do we
0: i don't think so i don't think we ever hear that it's cancer but the way it sounds like is that he's like you know undergoing treatments and is too sick to be out so it sounds sounds like chemo but i don't think we ever hear that that's exactly what it is
1: right and yeah, Robert Forster, again, just doing some of that, uh, that patented, great face acting that we, we've mentioned before. And then we get uh, <laughs> perhaps an even more delightful scene with Doc Hayward, where Frank, in a, a, just a, a magical bit of, of Twin Peaks technology here, has a screen on his desk that just sort of rises up from it.
0: It's operated by this weird little wooden handle that he turns like <laughs> a bar tap. You know what I mean? Like a keg tap. And it just like, <laughs> it's super fucking funny. Holy I shit. I love that. And then he's typing with two fingers. <laughs> like it's just like this crazy, ridiculous, like technological setup. But then he's like, tick, 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 like just two finger and the Skype handle. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and it's brilliant because I, you know I, that they had to construct this desk so that right. it could have this screen pop up. <laughs>
0: you know? It was the last thing on earth that I expected. <laughs>
1: so you know Lynch insisted like you you gotta build in this screen. It just it has to happen.
0: That was part of the uh the, that's why he walked away. They were like, dude, we're not building you a fucking desk that opens up to a sky screen. He's like, Well, I'm out. See you later. <laughs> <laughs> in 25 more years
1: yeah that was his dispute with showtime that was it that was why he walked away he needed to have the special (laughs) skype screen and he just he would not budge
0: they were like fine
1: (laughs) so yeah we get our first and sadly only scene with uh the great doc hayward um one of my favorite characters from the original run just a stand-up guy played by warren frost of course the father of of mark frost and sadly warren frost passed away pretty shortly after this um Mm -hmm. due to complications from from alzheimer's apparently but i'm glad that we were able to get this this one scene with him because it is rather significant in that it gives us it, it it kind of sows the seeds for what we would understand about Mr. C and Audrey and Richard and how that whole horrible scenario played out here.
0: Yeah, and I think it gives us a little bit of insight into Audrey. I listened back a couple times. I couldn't exactly tell, but it sounds like you said Doc says she was in a coma. Well, I couldn't. I I kept hearing it differently. It's saying like he was saying he was. She was was still in a coma, or like she's in a coma, and that whole thing about Audrey, like where she is, what she's doing, that last shot of her seemingly in like a clinical setting. Yeah, this and this is the only time that we ever hear any information about Audrey Horn um, besides what we see in her own scenes. So I'd say that this is this is a pretty huge uh, little dump of information.
1: Yeah, this is this is kind of a sort of a mini Rosetta Stone for understanding a lot of the things that happen uh, in this season, particularly, like I said, with regards to, to Richard and Audrey. And what we're referencing, of course, is the idea that Mr. C raped Audrey while she was in a coma. This really became a, a popular theory around this episode. It was already something that people had mentioned as a possibility when Richard first showed up and his name in the credits was Richard Horn, But I think people really started to accept that this horrible circumstance was the thing that produced Richard in the first place. And um, of course it would later be confirmed 100%, pretty much 100% later.
0: Yeah, because doc says that he saw cooper sneaking out of the intensive care unit and that he called out to him and he said he saw like gave him that that creepy face or a creepy smile or something mm-hmm. like that so it, it goes you know the dialogue goes out of its way to to put some you know some sketchiness in there and then obviously you know we obviously do find out that mr c is indeed richard Horne's father so yeah it it's one of those things too that like when we think about richard and linda um and like the implications of that you know that the whole double naming convention and having mr c's son be named richard is probably part of that double naming convention but i think that there's a significance to to that within the whole story like there's we're seeing like i don't know like different shades of the same idea Uh, being played out in different worlds like there's the Richard of Richard Horn and then there's the Richard that we see in like this new pocket dimension and it's an it's still an aspect of Cooper whereas like so would his offspring be would be somewhat of a uh, reflection of of that person at least like thematically so so I think that this whole this little bit uh, it's almost disguised in a little comedy bit because then they you know it starts with it's like bookended by comedy they start with the crazy screen and the typing and then they have this very serious conversation and then they start talking about trout and fishing and pan frying and breakfast and shit so uh it's almost like just like a little nook within that you get this just like you i love that you call it a rosetta stone like it is it's like this way to sort of read and interpret what happens afterwards and what has happened before
1: yeah yeah, I'm, I'm I'm glad you brought up the Richard thing because definitely not arbitrary or an accident that Richard Horn and the iteration of Cooper that we see in the final episode have the same name. The right. the fact that this version that we see of Cooper that very clearly has some Mr. C-ish elements is named mm-hmm. You know, has the same name as this offspring. This brutal deed of Mister right. C is certainly n- not something to be ignored. For sure. And then uh, the scene is uh, <laughs> the scene is topped off with a poop joke, where uh, Doc says he found two brown trout in his pajamas. So
0: <laughs> not sure how they got in there. Yep. Uh, that's funny.
1: <laughs> yep. So yeah. Uh, R.I.P. Warren Frost R.I.P. Doc Hayward. Speaking of actors who have sadly passed away um, we get a scene between Lieutenant Cynthia Knox who we've seen before and Detective Mackley Detective Matt Mackley played by Brent Briscoe who sadly passed away as well in oh. October of 2017 so pretty shortly after him. yeah Mm-hmm. yeah pretty shortly after this season was finished um yeah just yeah yet another actor on this show who is no longer with us there's there's a lot and um yeah i don't know i just the the more that you you realize just how many of these people have passed away the the least likely a fourth season seems to me. I don't know. That's just my opinion.
0: Yeah. I mean, we could probably dig in on that for a while, but yeah, yeah. it it seems like the five-year production time, um, the fact that so many of the actors were in the twilights of their career or even in the twilights of their lives. Uh, yeah, I don't know. There, there's, And the fact that there is just like I don't want to say that there's nowhere to go because obviously there is everywhere to go, but with the, I don't know whats just like the, the breadth of, of the return. I really don't, I don't see how that's going to happen again. It had this sort of like so many people were obviously coming out of the woodwork to do it because it was the first time in 25 years that they were getting to return. And for a lot of them, it was the only chance that they would have to return to Twin Peaks. Um, so a, f- a fourth season doesn't seem logistically likely. However, the fact that Lynch hasn't disavowed it and seems to be continuously promoting the return and uh, and offering little new sprinklings, who knows? I mean, anything could happen, even if it was like a limited event thing. I would be not shocked if it was through a streaming service like Netflix, but it just seems like Showtime is really invested in him, so... Who the hell knows? I will drive myself nuts if I try and uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, if I we try could, to get my hopes up for it,
1: we could really, uh, if we're not careful, get into a whole rabbit rabbit hole here about season four and could it happen and whatnot. But I, mm. I, I will simply say that I personally do not believe that a fourth season is coming, and I'm okay with that. I like I yeah. Lynch is what is he 72, 73 now? It took him five years to make this season. I just don't know. You know a bunch of his his friends and collaborators are dead like i just don't know if he really wants to climb mount everest again at, at this point in his life but certainly wouldn't be shocked if we got another season at some point um you know there doesn't appear to be any evidence that lynch his, his health is failing or anything like that um so yeah who knows uh fingers but, crossed yeah yeah anyways um, so Cynthia Knox, she heads down to South Dakota. She believes that she's there to investigate some prints from Major Briggs at the Ruth Davenport crime scene. And to her shock and horror, she learns that there is actually a body of Major Briggs here. And weirdly enough, his body appears to be that of a man in his forties when he obviously should be in his seventies. Yep. Clearly uh traversing between planes of reality has preserved Major Briggs in some capacity.
0: Yeah, I mean I I I, I, I myself am somewhat rusty on the the goings on of like Ruth Davenport and Bill Hastings and the Major, but or even I'm not totally clear <laughs> you know when he disappeared he obviously disappeared around the time of of like Lara Palmer's death but just like the whole thing is confusing to me and how he you know his body existed but it was existing like sort of in this other space and then it comes like i don't know um the the thing is so perplexing but it's a second example we get this this episode of something that's out of time and out of place the first being obviously Lara's diary
1: yeah, I believe Bobby mentions that his dad was thought to have died in a fire because that's like Mr. Briggs's I forget what you want to call it, like his his workstation or whatever like burned to the ground. So, I yep. think that they assumed that he he passed away there and that's probably why no one was, you know, nobody thought that Major Briggs was going to was going to show up anytime soon. So, hmm. like we mentioned before, the woodsman just sort of hover around all things related to Major Briggs and the Hastings and Davenport Mr. C circle of weirdness that we sort of vaguely catch glimpses of here and there throughout the season.
0: Cynthia notices him too and uh, just looks at him and kind of looks away and then ignores him very very uh interesting but i do love the sound design or that that sort of grainy scratchy hum that you get uh before you see the woodsman and then he he, him just just the figure out of focus you can tell that's what it's going to be just by like the audio cue and then focuses in on him she turns and looks um really creepy really good scene
1: yep Lieutenant Knox, she relays this very strange information about Major Briggs to Colonel Davis, who I think I erroneously stated that we only got one scene with Ernie Hudson. And uh, so, yeah, this is the second one. And I think that's it. I'm pretty sure that's it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's that's pretty much it in terms of the Major Briggs plotline for this episode. Let's go check in with Andy, who... Is meeting with a man who apparently owns the truck that Richard stole and that he hit the child with in the previous episode. This is very strange. The guy here is weirdly nervous. I don't exactly know why he's so anxious and ready to get Andy the hell out of there. Do you? I mean,
0: I don't know and I don't remember seeing richard necessarily steal the truck so it confused me for a second first yeah how did that's the truck but how did that how did richard get it um yeah i don't know exactly what he's so nervous about but he is adamant that andy has to leave at that moment and as soon as andy leaves he looks at his watch Mm -hmm. so it's as if he's expecting Someone? Um, but why Andy is so cool. I mean, he is Andy. He's a, he's a kind of a clutch, but like why he's so cool with just leaving, uh, and trusting this random guy. Um, it's very weird. Uh, I don't know if it's of any note, but the camera circles them while they're having this conversation, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was just, I don't know if it was significant, but it's, it's something that's just circles are again, something consistent with Andy and that this like sort of, uh, the, I don't know, has you know the uh like the camera effect they're using? How it's very like the colors kinda sucked out a little bit. He mm-hmm. looks very very That's the like that's the same every time Andy goes off on these weird little things, like when he goes to Glastonbury Grove and I think that's where it goes, where he sees the wormhole, his face is all always like uh, this. Jack of Rabbit's Palace. Out. Sorry, Jack Rabbit's palace, that's right. what it is. Mm-hmm. Um But yeah, I don't know. Every everything about this these scenes seems a little bit squirrely to me. Mm -hmm. Like we're not necessarily meant to read it the same way as we've been reading everything else. There is a
1: weird urgency to this scene. mm -hmm. And I don't, maybe it's possible that this guy, this farmer apparently is, is um, maybe he's like afraid of Richard. Like maybe that's what he's worried about that Richard is going to show up again. Maybe. Sure.
0: But wouldn't he like want to cop there when Richard shows up? Uh, <laughs> that's a great question. I don't
1: know. Um, yeah, we, do, we don't yeah. really know. And significantly, Andy tells him to meet him near Sparkwood and 21. Obviously mm-hmm. a, a well-known location at 430, mm-hmm. 430. And yep. this is the point at which everybody was like, oh, 430. We're about to get the payoff for that. And then later we cut to Andy waiting in vain for this guy to show up and
0: nothing happens. So,
1: nope, that wasn't it, folks.
0: Yeah, but I do think that the inclusion of 430 in this scene has some significance, somewhat, maybe in the same way that Richard Horn being named Richard has it. Where we're seeing aspects of this, like I don't think the num I don't think the numbers necessarily mean anything. Like I don't think there's anything significant to the numerological like value of four three zero. I think it's just a symbol of of this sort of uh, it's a pass like like when we see it do pay off, it's like the spot at which you can pass over and transfer over into this different reality. So I don't know if that I I do have so. I I may be talking out of my ass here, but is that guy that they're talking to is that guy named Billy or is or am I making that up? He's not named Billy in this episode, but I feel like someone I read somewhere that that guy might be Billy.
1: Hmm. I don't know. It
0: could be. All right, it could be bullshit. But in, fact, in way, fact, you
1: know what? In fact, you know what? I'm going to take a second to look that up because if that's true, then that's really interesting. Hang on, let's look that up right now
0: on one day billy witnessed chuck stealing his truck and called the sheriff the truck was later found without incident that's what i'm thinking of that's not this though
1: okay it is pretty weird though that we get two instances of guys stealing trucks in this show though
0: yeah i don't know that is that billy stealing the Chuck, the truck is that something that audrey says i'm pretty sure
1: well i think charlie mentions it because yeah, I think Charlie the... okay. I think Charlie is on the phone with Tina and she tells him this whole thing and then Charlie relays it back to Audrey. I think that's how that goes.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. Um, well, either way, more more fuckery and uh, I don't want to go I don't want to go too wacky with my whole circles theory, but yeah, you know, <sighs> that guy looks at his watch and then when Andy's waiting there, we get a shot like a close-up shot of him looking at his watch which is obviously round um and it's like 505 or something like that so he decides to leave but i think regardless of any sort of like like i don't think that we're gonna i don't think i'm gonna discover like some aha moment and crack this case i think we're just meant to view these scenes with a different attitude than some of the other ones like they're happening like, um and as we as we get to some more scenes throughout this episode i'll i'll circle circle back to this one because i have some more thoughts on it based on some stuff that happens later
1: uh well first of all i'm very disappointed that you're not going to be the first person in the world to uh completely lay out everything that happens in this scene so uh, just, i mean just want to let me you me know that I'm, yeah i'm just i'm really i'm really broken up about that frankly um, i'm very sorry
0: nick i'll try harder
1: god so yeah the, this 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 these scenes here with andy they are imbued with a weird significance uh very notably in my opinion we hear laura's theme over this scene of andy waiting here which Mm -hmm. like we don't just hear laura's theme at any old time the only time we've heard it before this is when bobby sees laura's photo and the only time we hear it after this is when laura or when cooper is saving laura in the woods. So, it's very curious to me that we get that song at this moment.
0: And it's at Sparkwood in 21. Yes, exactly. Sparkwood in 21. Uh,
1: There's just all this, like, very significant window dressing to this scene, but for reasons that completely elude me. And it's worth pointing out that while Andy is waiting for this guy, we do get a flash back to this guy's home where we see the truck still in the yard and the door is open just a little Mm -hmm. bit like it's just left ajar like he's left his house but his truck is still there so either he went somewhere on foot or maybe someone broke in or maybe someone abducted him like it just it's it's such a small thing but i love it because it just like lynch does in his best moments it just opens up your mind to all these possibilities
0: yeah and i don't know now that i'm thinking about even more that sort of that mention of billy having his truck stolen and chuck reporting it to the sheriff's office and then billy being missing i, I don't know i think that that guy might be billy <laughs> like maybe that's because they call the sheriff station reported it missing and then Andy went and spoke to this guy and then obviously the truck was there so Andy was like what the fuck is going on this guy's very nervous the last thing we see is like when he was supposed to be meeting Andy his door is open and he's missing and the last thing that happened in this episode is someone screaming where is Billy so right. I don't know um, I really it is is it it is. but it, this this shit this is what's up this is why I love the show <laughs> this <laughs> is like the meat and potatoes
1: yeah 100% okay sorry i was just checking to see if the guy who runs in at the end of the episode was this farmer guy or not because it did pop into my head that maybe it was Ooh. uh the answer the answer is that the guy who runs into the double r is somebody named bing who is played a pair i did not realize until this just now but is played by riley lynch oh really we saw in the band trouble earlier in the season
0: huh? yeah 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 that's funny i had i had no idea huh. and con-
1: considering the fact that there's a bunch of weirdness going on with that closing scene that right. that's that's just more fuel to the fire for this like alternate timeline business but let's we'll get there when we get there really? um <laughs> let's go meet up with gordon cole who is uh having a good whistle in his office like you do you just sit around you just lean back and you just you have a whistle and mm-hmm. uh some people say that he's whistling uh like a Ramstein song really yeah people seem very confident that there's like a very particular Ramstein melody that he's whistling here i've listened to it i guess i could see where people get that idea but i just think it would be very weird if lynch did that intentionally i think he's just i think he's just is has fallen in love with a a tune to whistle
0: personally i think he's just whistling it 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 almost has like a little bit of a native american sound to it as Mm -hmm. well but i love that the you get that right on the cut the shot of corn a cob of Mm -hmm. corn wearing Mm -hmm. like a almost like looks like a what like a almost looks like a vampire thing like a cloak or like this weird uh outfit but i don't i don't know what that is i just thought it was funny
1: yep we open up on that that framed painting of (laughs) corn we move over the camera pans we see gordon cole whistling to his heart's content with that giant explosion behind him just a, just a totally normal dude with a normal office
0: he's got his hearing aid cranked which you can hear from just the feedback
1: Yep, Albert comes in, gives him the lowdown on Diane, and they go to pay Diane a visit at her apartment, where, uh, funny enough, she's there with this, like, handsome young stud. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> who, uh, I, just, I just always found that funny, the idea that Diane is just, like, this massive cougar who just has, like, this harem of young men who just, like, love her and dote on her. I'm i believe it. just the,
0: in the, even the way that he's like bye diane and blows her a kiss and she's like yeah bye uh-huh. <laughs> it's it's great like she um, really
1: like she really doesn't have time for him it's it's funny
0: and this the way the how cool that dude is when the fbi shows up and he's like fbi champ we're here to see diane <laughs> we're all <old> friends <laughs> of diane and he's just like where that's cool yeah come on in." <laughs> yeah uh hilarious
1: yep Long story short, Diane is really rude to them. Uh, they convince her to hop on an airplane to visit Cooper in Yankton Federal Prison. Gordon asks her if she has a cigarette. and uh, Or wait, does he ask her for, for coffee? coffee. Yeah, he, he, asks asks her for, for coffee. he asks her for coffee. And she's like, uh, she's there <laughs> drinking coffee, smoking a cigarette. She says, no, I don't have any cigarettes either which is just uh, uh just a great rude Diane moment of which there are many in this season.
0: Yeah, she she actually like she I thought it was kind of like goofy at first, but the more she kept being just an abrasive jerk to everybody, the more it just became so endearing. Um one thing I noticed is that as soon as uh Gordon Cole says Cooper's name, you can actually see diane like shudders and she does like her shoulders sort of like creep up uh and she does this weird kind of like uh twitchy thing which mm-hmm. is very much supporting my idea that even though this is the diane telpa uh she doesn't know that she thinks she's diane she's fully operating consciously i think as diane and not sure this, like construct of mr c's sure she she has all thing.
1: of diane's memories obviously so right it makes sense that she would she would believe that she's diane so just another just a moment that i like here in this scene when she mentions that she doesn't have any cigarettes gordon goes ah the memory of tobacco which is just like another in these long li- this long line of like the congressman's dilemma faces of stone just like (laughs) that's my favorite just these these extremely (laughs) memorable little morsels of dialogue that gordon has that i that just have brought me so much delight since i've seen them yeah he he has another one in the next he just has a way of coming up with these phrases and then delivering them in such a way that they just stick in your head forever it's great I love
0: it. Yeah, he, he doesn't get, a, a, I don't think, enough credit for his command of language through his characters. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is really... You know, he makes you... You know that thing where you say a word over and over again and it sounds weird? He has yeah. a way of doing that with just dialogue, with the way that people talk to each other until you're just like... It just makes you uh, kind of take in how utterly strange it is out of context, like the things that people do and say.
1: Absolutely. The crew then goes to South Dakota there's a scene here on an airplane we have to talk about just very briefly the flickering windows here because as the plane is flying there is a sort of flickering effect that happens on the windows and this from my research online has driven people to the brink of madness because
0: I missed it completely
1: yeah I did not see it Either until I saw just like Reddit thread upon Reddit thread of people saying that, oh, the pattern translates to this, it means that, you know, like there's no, or something? you know, like getting all scientific saying, like, oh, there's no way that the light would reflect off the glass like that, it's like some sort of lodge signal, blah, 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 blah. And I just, I'm just gonna back away slowly from that whole theory. <laughs> um I, de- you know, yeah, I didn't even I, pick up on it at i all. <laughs> yeah i just look sometimes people in, in this show they 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 go they go a little far it's a bit much and i'm just gonna say that i don't think the flickering windows mean anything but i'm sure that somebody will tell me that oh how dare you say that it doesn't mean anything or whatever, but whatever, yeah. it's fine. One thing
0: I wanted to go back to real quick and just ask you if you had a thought on oh, is sure. when when Gordon is convincing or trying to convince Diane to come and see Cooper, he says it has something to, has to do with something that you know about, and that's enough said about that. Right. Um, that is an intriguing little statement to me because I'm not sure exactly what he's referring to. If he's referring to like Blue Rose in general, or if he's talking about something more specific having to do with two coopers
1: i thought so we learn a little bit later i think that cooper and diane had a had a bit of a fling a bit of an attraction at the very least we know that they kissed and Mm -hmm. gordon cole it is implied knew about this so maybe he's just referring to the fact that Diane and Cooper had this special relationship therefore she might be somebody who would be able to suss out exactly what's going on with Cooper or mm-hmm. see something in this version of Cooper that might might shed some light on what's happening I don't know that that was the way I read it
0: okay Yeah, so I don't know it, anything is, is is good to me I just thought it was a very uh, just and that's enough said about that. I just thought it was yeah. an intriguing little way to end it. But that would make sense because he's like implicating that he knew that she knows that he knows blah blah blah. All right, anyway. Yeah, back mm-hmm. to the airplane.
1: Certainly. So, some interesting stuff on this airplane. They figure out that Cooper's or Mr. C's rather, fingerprint on his his left ring finger is actually backwards like it's flipped for some Mm -hmm. reason and gordon connects this to what he calls irrev the backward the backwards word and of course Mm -hmm. we heard mr c way back in part believe part four say it's it's very irrev good to see you again old friend which right gordon repeats to tammy and sort of does this this finger touching exercise wherein her left ring finger is the one that corresponds to Erev, the backwards word, and he refers to this as the spiritual mound, which is just all it's all it's all a very very strange, very nebulous connection here. But mm-hmm. one thing that I did just want to point out. As a notable fact here is that when Sarah Palmer opens her face, we see a hand there that's sort of, like, bathed in white light. And this spiritual finger, quote-unquote, is, like, the one black finger, and it's, like, hyper-elongated as well.
0: Huh. Oh, wow. That's nuts. I did not pick up on any of that. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. No shit. So so when he does the, like, it is very, very good or very ear e- e- of good to see you again with her fingers. The one that ear of is on is her, her left ring finger. Is that what mm-hmm. you're saying? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. So, Oh shit. That's so weird. Why wouldn't he yeah. have like, why? Oh, that's crazy. I didn't, I didn't pick up on that. I heard him say ear of backwards word and remembered that. But, and I wonder too, the 10 fingers thing, the number 10 is like, yep. you know, that whole like two, five, three number of completion, that's yep. sort of something that we keep seeing pop up as well. I just love the two words, the way where he goes. Uh, what does he say? He's like, "Now you think about that, or now that's something for you to think about, Tammy, or something like that." <laughs> this little weird little uh, lynchism. It mm-hmm. sounds like a, it sounds like a dad almost. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. Now that's something for you to think about, okay?
1: Yeah, and the, uh, s- uh, he he says a similar thing later. I think it it might be in the Monica Bellucci episode where he's like, "Damn." Now this is really something interesting to think about. He says <laughs> something says something like that too um, but yeah this whole this whole thing with Yiriv, the backwards word and the spiritual mound, and it's just a just a just a neat connection here that I don't really if you ask me like well what what does it all mean? What does it connect to? I don't know, but i just I enjoy that that connection exists personally
0: yeah it, it 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 takes some things that seemed random that now don't now that it seems like they have at least some connection to something but sure. uh and then, and then obviously
1: cooper the you know obviously mr c being connected to sarah palmer who's connected to judy and all this sort of stuff it just it provides tenuous but meaningful connections i would say
0: yeah and i think i think being hip to this i'm going to be you know, paying a little bit more attention to those scenes with Sarah Palma that we get later on. Uh, I do not wonder what spiritual mound means. Uh, what is What do those two words next to each other mean? I don't spiritual know. Spiritual mound. I can only think of like a mound of dirt or like something. I don't know. I don't know. I really no don't. No fucking clue yep. as usual.
1: But speaking of Mr. C... the fbi produces a pretty hilarious photo in my opinion of mr c i love this picture in like a white blazer
0: (laughs) he looks like this
1: epic mansion in rio brazil
0: yeah someone photoshopped the grand theft auto vice city logo (laughs) over that picture and it is fucking it's just perfect it's just like it's such like a miami vice like 80s cokehead picture it's nuts
1: it is it is Mr. C looks like he's about to like he's about to like hop on a track with DJ Khaled or something
0: just like yeah he's he's nuts
1: yeah I don't know why I always just found this funny like Mr. C in this incredibly opulent setting it just he's he's so out of place and just that jacket is just something that we never see him wear it's great
0: I know it's literally the exact opposite of Dougie's puke Booger green lame ass jacket is this mm-hmm. Mr C's super swag and he's wearing black on black underneath it. Mm-hmm. Uh, just just in this oh yeah I found this picture I'm gonna send it to. You. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's it is um, uh, for all of the like you'd expect like we've found this picture this is the only known picture we have of him and it'd be some like grainy weird <laughs> thing. Nope, it's Mr C. It almost looks like it's from like a
1: it almost looks like it's from a photo shoot or something. Cause it's just, yeah. it's so like, it's so immaculately composed to make him look like a baller.
0: Yeah. And who took that picture and how did the FBI get it? And et etc. Et it's such a weird, like it's not a spy photo. Oh, like, I do yeah, Keep walking. Keep walking. Okay, good. Looks great.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Snap. Yeah. And then Mr. C comes over to look at the pic. He's like, hell yeah. I look badass. Yeah. Let's use that one. Throw a
0: filter on that. We're good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's a it's a very it's a very funny only photo for them to have.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. It's uh it's the swankiest last last known photo of somebody ever.
0: And then Albert mentions that when they got there, the house was taken over by a girl from Ipanema. Uh-huh, which okay <laughs> why <laughs> are we quoting that song and it cuts straight to diane who like rolls her eyes it's like what is that what the what was that all about?
1: yeah yeah i don't know man what a
0: weird scene
1: yeah yeah very odd stuff happening on this plane they arrive in yankton prison where diane just has an all-time rude moment to tammy here mm-hmm. tammy tammy says something or other i, fr- I forget exactly what And she says, what's your name again? Tammy. Fuck you, Tammy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah.
0: I was expecting someone to say, like, hey, now – or, like, Albert to be like, oh, well, you're in on it now. You're part of the club mm -hmm. officially.
1: Yeah, exactly. So we move from that that bit of comedy to what I would argue is probably – the apex of mr c just being an absolute creepy fuck he is Mm -hmm. terrifying in this scene
0: yeah from the the opening of the shutter to just his cold reptilian face it is it is unnerving
1: yeah I, i know that we've said a lot like oh this is like this is like mr c at his most terrifying no like this is it this is it for me i think it has to do with Not just the way that he looks, which is just completely dead behind the eyes, inhuman, but also the way that he interacts with Diane here. Because Diane is clearly alluding to the night in which he raped her. And the things that he says to her in response, he says, Are you upset with me, Diane? Which is just a hell of a thing to say to somebody that you raped.
0: Yeah, it's it's uh I don't even have words for it. It's it's beyond it's just so like removed from from the emotion that it should have. It's just so creepy.
1: Yeah, and she asks him, Do you remember what happened that night, the last night that we saw each other? And he says, I'll always remember that night. It's you know, we we've talked before about Mr. C's particular level of sadism towards the women that he encounters Mm -hmm. and this is definitely indicative of that to me just the really just inhuman way that he speaks to this woman that he's raped and manipulated and who he continues to manipulate to his own means It's, it's it's just it is beyond fucked man it is it is insane
0: yeah and i think it's either either when he says i will always remember that night or when he says at your house he says it very slowly uh and he like drags it out with this like almost like mirth like you can he shows no expression but you can just tell by the way he says it and his his function as a creature throughout uh the return and bob's function as an entity throughout twin peaks is like yeah, that's part of it. Not only did he rape her and, and manipulate her and psychologically fuck her up for her whole life and, by the way, blind her and lock her away in some weird purple space, um, he's also just... Part of it is that he is showing this unrelenting, inhuman response to what he did, which he, which obviously like, re-ups the, the traumatic effect of it, which we see, obviously, Diane... Uh, suffer from uh, in, in the latter scenes but it is just his his inhumanity is like almost best shown in that light and how he not only is he violent and brutal and evil to women like physically and, and like that but also in his just demeanor in his recollection of an event that's evil <laughs> like just mm. the way that he thinks and speaks and exists is just this pure and it's just such a well portrayed uh just vehicle for just human agony and suffering uh it's it it, mr c is probably the most effective character at least outwardly in uh at least like achieving what that character is supposed to achieve at least like emotionally i think
1: Mm -hmm. yeah for me the way that Mr. C is realized in this season is one of the highlights for sure. I think that they really nailed this character, um, and yeah, like I said, this is maybe this is maybe the most powerful scene that he is in in this season, in my opinion. And Diane is really shaken up by this encounter, understandably so, and it brings to mind some interesting questions here because we know that she is in fact working for Mr. C, but if she knew that she was working for Mr. C, then would it make sense for her to have this sort of reaction to him? And I think it, it almost makes me believe that she doesn't know that she's working for Mr. C.
0: I don't think she is.
1: No, because there is evidence to suggest that she isn't texting Mr. C directly. Like, Albert mm-hmm. I think it's 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 in one of the later episodes. Albert says that her texts between her and Mr. C are like being rerouted to some satellite in Mexico. So mm. there's a really good chance it's probably likely that she doesn't actually know who it is that she's been texting with and, and there's also some weird stuff like Mr. C sends texts that are in like lowercase that end up uppercase or vice versa. There's just there's mm. evidence to suggest that there is some intermediate intermediary between Mr. C and Diane.
0: Yeah, it's definitely not a case where they created the Diane Tulpa to fool the FBI and work toward Mr. C's ends. Like it's not that cut and dry. I would definitely say that the Diane Telpa thinks she's Diane and had, you know, consciously has all the memories of Diane. And so, or, or at least the memories that were given to her or, or what, however that works. But I don't get the sense that this, this Diane is knowingly maliciously working against the FBI. I think that she has been programmed or something to that effect, or she is, has been manipulated and doesn't believe or doesn't know exactly the truth about who she is working with or who she's working for. Um, I watching it the first time took at face value. This is just Diane. This is Diane. And, and she's traumatized from, from that horrible experience. And one thing that I thought was interesting is that when she breaks down and, um, and just like squeezes Gordon Cole and gives him a huge hug, he reacts very, Strangely, and he like hover yep. hands her. He doesn't even get. He, he's just like doesn't even actually put his hands on her and give her the hug because he's almost just like, what the fuck is this? Mm-hmm. Like he's never in a million years has he seen Diane act like this. And whether or not that's supposed to indicate that he thinks that something is off or that she's acting or something like that, I don't know. But there, I definitely noticed that he he kind of like very nervous tenuously sort of like puts his hands around her but doesn't close in, doesn't embrace her at all.
1: Yeah, he's very caught off guard by her breaking down and hugging him because Mm -hmm. to this point, she's just been telling him to fuck off pretty much the entire time. So
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: To see her be so shaken up by this encounter with Mr. C and to hear her say that there's just like something in Cooper's soul, you know, she kind of just like presses on her chest and says like, there's something different in here. I think that Gordon realizes in that moment that something really serious is going on with mm-hmm. Cooper and that Diane's reaction to him is like the the clearest sign of that. But there are there are there are scenes that suggest that Diane isn't totally working in good faith with the FBI though, like for example right. The fact that she sees the woodsman at the site of the zone where Bill Hastings is killed and she says nothing, you know, and she kind of lies about it and she is, she does seem to be aware of the fact that she's double crossing them, but how much of that is just a result of her being brainwashed to a certain extent by Mr. C. So maybe she isn't even aware that she's working at odds with the FBI, it is is hard right. to say. Sticking around in prison with Mr. C, we get another scene that I just adore between him and Warden Murphy. I mentioned before that I'm just the sucker for this whole Mr. Strawberry proper noun salad stuff that Mr. Yeah. C does here. And this is just another super effective instance of that, in my opinion. This scene here with Warden Murphy. I love yeah, it.
0: I have like a, I have, at least in my head canon, and and a, like I built a story based on all of these these names and stuff. Oh, um, too tough, but just well, I don't. It's not it basically just the way that it all, it all unfolds, where he says maybe I'll call him Mr. Strawberry, and, this, and the the mention of the name Mr. Strawberry very deeply disturbs Warden Murphy, and the same thing with Joe McCluskey, like this name, the dog legs and stuff. I I really. I'm not sure about, but I just have this, like, I it just evoked this thought in my mind of like the darkest shit I could think of, which is like, Warden Murphy is involved in some sort of like sex trafficking thing. And like Mr. Strawberry was his like sex slave of some kind. And Joe McCluskey was the like broker. And cause he says you're late Mr. Strawberry made me think that this is some, you know, some possessive thing like a, you know, and, uh, the fact that his, Mr. Strawberry is dead obviously would implicate of Murphy even more. But the the grander point is just that, yeah, it does, the fact that I did that in the first place, the fact that it evoked this image, I think was the point. Like, there is no real, quote-unquote, real story there. Um, But the fact that it, it works so well for, like, you don't question for one second how Warden Murphy just got extorted by Mr. C. Like, you buy it, Based on from what, just the way he says Joe McCluskey, it's just that that I don't know. It's a great name too. It's a perfect creepy name. Um, but yeah, I, I I too found these these scenes with Mr. C and Warden Murphy to be extremely effective.
1: Yeah, and that's the thing. You don't need to know anything specific about Mr. Strawberry or Joe McCluskey or what's happening with the dog leg. All that's important is that you know that the fact that Mr. Scene has any knowledge of this whatsoever just has Warden Murphy shook beyond belief. And yeah, yeah it, like the it, fact it just that, works. Yeah. The fact that we know that Mr. Strawberry is dead. Yeah, it's not a huge leap to maybe infer that Warden Murphy is somehow responsible for the death of this mr strawberry some people think mm-hmm. that mr strawberry is the dead dog which i find kind of amusing hmm, um yeah i don't know i i don't know cause he <laughs> says
0: the other three legs went out with the information that you're thinking about right now right and to people that you don't want coming
1: means. around here if anything bad happens to me
0: it's just all it. it it's all that type of implication speak where you're or where you're actually not implicating yourself you're just sort of saying these uh you know, these nouns or phrasing things in a certain way where he's like, How do I know you know it? you have any knowledge about this? Just how he calls it this. Uh it is like just such a giant open box. Um but it, it, it inside that there are so many possibilities for what the fuck they could be talking about. And the grander point just being that you buy it. It sounds like something. It sounds like a scenario that you wouldn't know about. <laughs> it, it just It, I don't know it's it's very it's almost kind of meta like how it's playing on um it's playing on that like you're just like what you would accept as I don't know I don't know how to word it just like how two people when you hear like two strangers having a conversation on the sidewalk you have no fucking idea what it's about or any of the names that they're saying but you buy it it makes sense it's a conversation two people would have um To be able to do that effectively with with, with written dialogue, I just think it's crazy. It's it's just really uh, impressive.
1: It is classically Lynchian in the sense that it takes some inherently innocuous words and phrases and ideas and presents them in such a way that they become fascinating and horrifying. And I I could just watch an entire show of just shit like this. Honestly, I just me too. this is like this is like this is the good shit to me. And yeah, this information is disturbing enough to the warden that he agrees to let Mister C out of jail with Ray in tow. And we do see later on Mister C meeting with Ray and then just casually walking out and taking a beige rental car with them so mm-hmm. and the conclusion of that uh thread will be seen in the next episode very notably
0: ooh, 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 ooh.
1: yep so let's go to vegas and check in with our old pal dougie dougie is in his office he's drawing on his desk mat or he's just, like, poking holes in it and stuff.
0: Yeah, he's, like, scribbling. And then he's scribbling yeah. on his, like, <laughs> yeah, on his he's... actual desk. <laughs> yeah,
1: he's got his pen in his palm, like a gardener as we established last episode. And he's just sort of punching holes in the desk mat. Not even, like, the documents themselves. Just the mat. And <laughs> as he's doing this, Anthony is, like, trying to grill him about the case files that he showed to Bushnell. And... Course, Dougie is Dougie, so he's just not giving anything back. But Anthony seems to know that he's probably screwed. And from there, we get our introduction to the detectives Fusco, which is how they introduce themselves, which is just unbelievable. Because are they
0: all Fusco?
1: Yes, yes, they're brothers.
0: Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> they are all
1: brothers and they are all detectives and they all work together. Just completely preposterous.
0: So it's just such a good detail.
1: Yeah. And <laughs> I love these guys. So they all they introduce so I believe it's um the the actor Robert Keckner who introduces David them. Da- Sorry, David Koechner. Yeah, I think it's him who introduces themselves, right? As Detective Fusco, or yep. maybe it's one of the other ones. Yeah, he's um, like the
0: more. He's, I think one of them. The guy in the back doesn't speak, or I don't think during this scene. It's mm-hmm. just him and the uh, the blonde guy.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the other guy, he uh, he does let out his trademark laugh at the end of the scene a little bit.
0: Oh right, that's right. That yeah, comes up way later.
1: Yeah, which is. Uh... <laughs> Which uh, I've seen interviews with that actor And he does say that the entire reason He got cast was because of that laugh Like David Lynch just Absolutely fell in love with that laugh Which is great That checks out for yep. sure mm-hmm. And this is really the beginning of Like Mama Bear, Janie E Where she's just like Sticking up for for Dougie no matter what just Defending him Against anybody who Might try to Uh, come at him or the jones family in general and naomi watts is just a queen in this scene she's she's very very good
0: yeah she's just the whole uh the whole resolution of it all when she finds out that they knew the car was stolen the whole time and she just has that look (laughs) on her face just like well there's your answer (laughs) she Mm -hmm. uh she is so uh she just so dialed into that and and it only ramps up, you know, af- in the in the following after the following scene too, with like this bike her mm-hmm. like <laughs> when she she's all in on Dougie, she buys it, mm-hmm. she buys in completely. It's it's great. She's, um, I I really I realized I haven't seen that many films of hers, like not too many. Uh, the most notable one being Mulholland Drive, obviously. Um, but I, I'm I'm actually interested in looking into more of her, um, her catalog or her, her, her filmography, because she has just got such a, an entrancing presence on the, on camera. She's just, like just, her vibrancy, the way she, she speaks, um, especially just as Janie E., this, this, this character who's just in, a, in a, there are so many unique characters on this show, but she is among, uh, among my favorites just for how, uh, how real she is. Like you, you just, I just, that's a real person Janie E. Jones like I, I I believe in her she she has like this breath it's it's great
1: mm-hmm. yeah Naomi Watts really fantastic uh if 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 you are or anyone else out there is looking to uh, get some, some some prime Naomi Watts content I would recommend um I Heart Huckabees the great okay. David O Russell film she's great in that there's Uh, a small indie film that i saw that really blew me away that hardly anyone ever talks about called ellie parker it's from like 2005 2006 that one's really Uh great um the impossible is a movie that has issues but she's really really fantastic in it um she's yeah she's she's pretty much always great she hasn't done too much great work recently honestly like she's been in Mm -hmm. quite a few flops but like the the heights of her career are very high and obviously Mulholland Drive is and will likely always be the the apex of her career but yeah she is super indignant about Dougie being questioned about his car, especially when she finds out, like you said, that they knew that the car was stolen already. You know, like she is just she's talking about how Dougie's been under a lot of stress lately, and then she mentions how they have to go because their son is waiting home for his supper, and in case you think we're neglecting him, he's being watched by our neighbor as a favor. Like she's <laughs> she's just she is just on ten on in this yeah. scene and it's great
0: it is beautiful it is beautiful for a scene that was starting to like bother me with how uh just just you know that just the nature of the dougie scenes where it's always just these two shots back and forth back and forth in this one room um with the whole monotony of them being like where's your car dougie where's your car uh or just like whatever it's this whole thing but then when she just starts firing off uh it makes it all so worth it
1: yeah and This dialogue here about the car being missing versus stolen, Mm -hmm. very reminiscent of the sheriff station scene from a few episodes earlier to me, where it's like, "Yeah, is it missing?" But it's here, like that whole thing. It's sort of exactly, in my opinion, probably a direct callback to that scene. So as Dougie and Janie E are walking out of Lucky Seven. Dougie is accosted by Ike the Spike who runs up with a gun and Dougie springs into action. He pushes Janie E out of harm's way. He grabs Ike the Spike by the hand and he gets a vision of the evolution of the arm and just a hilariously <laughs> cheesy CGI effect where he just appears as like a little mini evolution of the arm on the ground. And yeah, like a tells him and tells him to squeeze his hand off. Squeeze his hand off. Like over and over again. It's great.
0: Yeah, that was super weird. <laughs> yeah. It's a super weird little boat. Squeeze his hand off. I was because there's no subtitle either. So I had to rewind it. I was like, what the hell is he saying? Squeeze his hand off.
1: Yeah, out of all the little ways in which the Lodge Influences Dougie throughout the season this is definitely one of the, the strangest and most memorable I think and Dougie just karate chops Ike right in the neck and Ike is just devastated by this blow and he just <laughs> runs off and I guess Dougie was just squeezing his hand so hard that his palm just stuck to the gun and peeled off of it and we get a guess. really we get a really disgusting shot of like the forensics person just peeling his flesh off of the gun. It's disgusting.
0: Yeah, at first I thought that it was like a like a piece of like the evolution of the arm. Like it, was, it just looked like this fleshy bit. I didn't realize it was his. It was actually his palm because like how does that happen how do you how do you tear someone's palm off uh while fighting for a gun i think the real thing that we have to keep in mind here though is that the only reason any of this shit went down is because ike (laughs) didn't have his spike if ike had his spike cooper was fucked there's Mm -hmm. no way
1: yeah no there's there is absolutely no way that dougie could compete with the power of ike plus his spike
0: yeah I mean it's no no small it's no coincidence that he he goes he brings a gun to a spike fight and gets absolutely decimated
1: (laughs) yes yes indeed and this whole I gotta say this whole news report right here is just chef's kiss this is one of my this is one of my absolute favorite things right here when uh (laughs) JDE and Dougie are being interviewed about it and JDE is just going off and embellishing all this stuff Yep. Like she says, she's like, yeah, Dougie chopped him right in the throat and said, get off. And then I kicked him and I punched him, blah, 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 blah. And yeah, Dougie, yeah, yeah. And Dougie, re- <laughs> sorry, sorry, Dougie <laughs> no, reaches for the, uh, Dougie reaches for the badge, like in the middle yep. of all this. And she's like, Dougie, She you just swat his hand away?
0: Oh, it's so good. He reaches for the badge earlier too. And uh, yeah, with yeah, yeah. Detective Fusco. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just, yeah. But that, yeah, I loved how she mentions how she was kicking and punching because i went back to watch it again she chokes him she just wraps her arms around his neck but yeah just her her uh in the heat of the moment telling that story all fired up on adrenaline just this is another grand moment
1: oh fuck i love Jeannie. so yeah and then we get some more just one of my absolute favorite comedy moments in fact it's so good that we see it again later in the season where this woman is like She's talking about Dougie, and she's like, victim? Oh, no, that da- that guy didn't act like any victim. Douglas Jones, he moved like a cobra. All I saw was a blur. <laughs> and it's just like, holy shit, what a good, what a good. So yeah, it... Like, if you've seen Dougie in any of the previous episodes, just the idea of somebody saying, like, all I saw was a blur is just.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, and the fact that so many people were like, Immensely frustrated that you know, you this was the thing where everyone was like, Oh, Cooper's back, like that moment, like Cooper's back, he's just offended Jane E., but then he just goes right back to being Dougie, like, <laughs> and then the next episode being part eight. Um, yeah, the I loved the concept too of like, like lookers on, like giving their testimony to like what they saw, and just like, this is how. Uh, some random just everyday person will describe douglas jones like all i saw was a blur he moved like a cobra <laughs> he's no victim yeah. it's just so it's so fucking funny he's and a martial I, arts I think genius. intentionally funny
1: yeah it's just like this whole rashomon thing where everybody sees like a different version of dougie just being a just being a heroic son of a bitch
0: yeah oh uh, okay it's a wonderful scene
1: okay so i don't i don't know how i'm gonna move on from that I literally have tears in my eyes right now. (laughs) Just thinking about it. Okay. So, (laughs) let's go back to Twin Peaks. And we get the first of a few instances of this hum that we're going to get at a few points in this season. Mostly at the Great Northern. We do get it at one point in the hospital with Bushnell Mullins right before Cooper wakes up. But... Primarily, this hum is heard in the Great Northern, and the popular theory, of course, was that this was Josie signaling from inside the drawer pull.
0: Yeah, sure. I remember people talking (laughs) about that, and I was just like, why? Just because she's in the Great Northern? Like, (laughs) kinda, or technically? Like, how is she producing this hum, and why is it ubiquitous, and and, uh, then, like, just... Like all around, and not centralized on that drawer knob or whatever the fuck she's stuck inside of. Yeah, I, I think don't know that, why people th- are so adamant about that.
1: Sure, yeah, I I don't I don't know, but w- once we saw it in the hospital, it kind of kind of eliminated that theory for most people's minds. I think I don't really have yeah. any any strong theories as to what this hum could be. Perhaps because we do see James hearing it in the basement a little bit later uh which is where we would eventually see cooper go in and, and unlock the door and meet mike and whatnot maybe it's just like i don't know maybe it's uh, just that's what i thought yeah maybe it's just emanating from mike somehow like there's this magical space somewhere within the great northern that is going to later act as like a bridge between planes of reality i don't know
0: yeah I think that it's something it's something like that because it's it, it is clearly you definitely see that that sound is very strong when James is in the basement and he sees the door that Cooper unlocks um and then that's what really uh like from that point on is when we get the whole that's like the beginning of all the craziness of the of the ending of this season so I think it is just sort of some kind of signal uh, that is probably just manifesting sonically. Like we kind of see that throughout the show where there's symbols of things that seem random. Like the like the, like the whole, like the symbolism behind them isn't exactly r- like based on anything in, in particular. So this sound is just a sound that represents something that's going to happen later on in this location. I don't think that there's, there's, like, nothing else that it, that it ties into, and it ties in pretty much exactly with that basement. So that's all I got is that yep. there's there's something weird going on at the Great Northern. Um, we've kind of known that since the original run and, like, with room 315 uh, and the waiter and the giant appearing and all that stuff. So there's some conduit or who knows? It's some some weird, uh, I don't know, some weird hum.
1: Mm-hmm. It is definitely a weird hum we've established. That is indeed. Boom! Full circle again. <laughs> Circles. <laughs> yep. And Ben and Beverly have a what I think is a pretty cute scene here, where they're walking from one corner of the room to the other, trying to locate the source of the hum, and there there's some pretty obvious affection between Ben and Beverly here. Like it's mm-hmm. obvious that at the very least Beverly has. A crush on Ben, and it's a very subtle bit of acting here where Ben is probably can tell that Beverly has a thing for him, but he's committed to to not pursuing it and leaving the old Ben behind in a certain sense,
0: yeah, there's a growth um from the old horn dog that you know and love from or maybe just know from the original series um and this, this this little bit more mature, uh, or a lot more mature version of Ben Horn. And there's you know there's significant eye contact lingering after sentences. Like there's yeah there's a very clear um, attraction between the two. Um, but I I I did think it was it had it was endearing uh, to both characters. You know that they mm-hmm. sort of she seems like she's trying to you know wait for him to make a move and then yep. he just says well. Call maintenance in the morning, and mm-hmm. uh, and she's like, "Okay, well, thank you, Mister Horn." Yeah, insists that she calls him Ben, uh, but it's I, I like the chemistry between these two actors. Uh, the this, the way that there's you know the eye contact lingers maybe just a few seconds longer than it normally would after after people stop speaking. Uh, it's good.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it certainly seems as though Beverly is waiting for Ben to. Kiss her or say something to her as she's leaving. And then Ben Mm -hmm. just sort of says, Well, you know, time to pack it in. Whereas if this were 25 years ago, he would probably be all over this situation, one would imagine.
0: Yeah. And when she walks out of the room, he immediately like looks down and takes a deep breath, like, All right, Jesus Christ, I made it. I did it. (laughs) Like he was, (laughs) you know, trying intentionally not to be a horn dog.
1: Yep. He kept his horniness in check. Um, So. Notably, before we get off of this scene, Beverly does give Ben Cooper's 315 key. And mm-hmm. it's kind of neat here because Beverly asks a bunch of questions like, who's Agent Cooper? Who's Who's Laura Palmer? And it's just... I, I, li- I like it a lot because it's just a reminder of just how much time has passed here. And yes. how things are not the same. And that... Of course, this incident, this murder of Laura Palmer and, you know, all the weirdness involving Agent Cooper, even though it was very significant to the town, you know, new people arrive, old people leave, and these things just sort of fade into the background. And eventually they just, you know, their ancient history and mm-hmm. it just, it makes the town feel more... Alive in in my opinion. And I, I like how Ben Horn just sort of responds to the question of who is Laura Palmer with that. My dear is a long story because it certainly is.
0: Yeah. It, it, in, a, in a way that was like a nice little microcosm of the mm-hmm. show of like, who is Laura Palmer? It's a long story. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. It's funny. It's funny when you try to like, get people to watch Twin Peaks for the first time and you tell them like, yeah, it's about, this girl named laura palmer and she's dead and it's about trying to find out who killed her and they're like oh that sounds like a really interesting show and you're like yep <laughs> just i love leaving it with that i don't like telling people anything else and just seeing because to me that is still the the intriguing mystery is it like we were talking about earlier is laura palmer even after you find out who who had murdered her um the mystery is not over like there is so much more that gets uh that you, that you get to chew on with fire walk with me. And then with the return, but I thought that, uh, this scene had a, had that nice little, um, it felt removed enough from the original run, but this is still twin peaks. It's just a a twin peaks. That is farther along, just like all of us, just like all the viewers and all the people who watched the original run. Like I can imagine that this was the biggest trip of all time for those people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Literally, literally to to have aged with these characters and to have see you know where were you 25 years ago and where are they now um no yeah, it's it's uh it's very interesting and the i always uh get excited when the 315 key shows up because i'm still stuck on this whole connection between that and the two portals from the the mauve zone being three and 15 uh I don't know why <laughs> I'm, I'm stuck <laughs> on it but I, I feel like there's just uh oh, it's just interesting when you when yeah, you see just... the same stuff pop up
1: it's just all this numerology stuff burrowing burrowing its way into your head right. well i
0: think too that like when the cooper that shows up to twin peaks like is uh for what we know is a, a regular ish guy like he's involved in the blue road stuff but he's not uh he's not a fractured Personality yet, a la like uh, Philip Jeffries or anything, and then he stays in room three hundred and fifteen in his stay in Twin Peaks, and that's what changes him forever. And that mm-hmm. that number three hundred and fifteen almost could represent his like split into uh, the good Dale that we know and the evil Dale that we know. And when you see like when, so this is another thing that I, I realize, and it's a bit a bit of a tangent, but when Nido. Um when what is it when Nido stops Cooper from going into I think it's the the socket that says 15 or whichever the first one is mm-hmm. um that's going into Mr. C's like it shows you like a view from Mr. C's cigarette lighter like I'm pretty sure like you get that like shot of like his car like and all like the waviness and then Nido stops him from going into that one and instead brings him up pulls the switch and then he goes into the one that's three, which is into the Dougie Tulpa. Uh, and if that's, the, if that's the real Diane, is that the Diane working for Mr. C? And then this Tulpa is, some, I don't know. But mm. either way, long story short, that number 315 is extremely intriguing to me. And so it's showing up in this scene uh, in conjunction with all of the hum sounds and then the mention of Cooper and Lara. Um, I think we got some stuff to chew on.
1: hmm Yeah, it's interesting. I I really like that idea of 315 being representative of Cooper's transformation. First, by coming to Twin Peaks and staying, obviously, in room 315, where he was shot and encounters the, the giant for the first time and all that. And then also later, when he enters the mob zone and passes through that room and assumes a, a new identity there. Um, right. It's fa- fascinating. I never really thought about that. That's good. So we're not quite done with Beverly here. We follow her home in what I think is a very effective scene with her husband, Tom, who we see is sick. I don't think we, we find out exactly what his what his illness is, but he's clearly... Not doing very well. He's probably on chemo of some sort. Mm-hmm. And I we've talked before about Frost sort of inserting a little bit of social commentary here and there. To me, mm-hmm. Beverly being forced to go back to work to work for Ben Horn so that she can cover her husband's medical expenses is like right up there with the most effective and clear examples of that like just how completely screwed the american healthcare system is that just to keep her husband alive this woman has to go back and work for Bethorn.
0: horn right yeah and it i i read it the exact same way like this is just a little slice of uh, or a little peek into a normal the average citizen of twin peaks why they are doing what they are doing and it is because you know economically they they need you know beverly needs to support uh her husband who is who is seemingly gravely ill another thing that i thought was really interesting and like you can i think is being explored in this scene is sort of the complexity of human emotion or like maybe there's just the way that you know people express love or or care towards someone because she is working to keep Tom alive Um, but while doing that she is flirting with her boss and then of course nothing is being acted upon it but there there is that sort of like she has needs that must be fulfilled as well even though she so she's this sort of like torn person and she's trying to feed him and and give him food and he's clearly depressed and upset and maybe suspicious of why she's taken so long to get home from work and she just screams at him and says, don't fuck with me or don't fuck this up or both. Uh, while he just sort of frailly sits there. It's like, so even though she is, she is doing what she is doing solely just to keep her husband alive or, or or whoever this guy is to her, uh, she's also not completely a hundred percent like, uh, quote unquote in love with him. It seems, which I just thought was a little bit of flavor. Um, because uh, I feel like sometimes this season just shows you people acting and doing what they do in twin peaks. Um, and I thought that this was a real, cause since this scene kind of ultimately is of no other consequence, right? We don't get, we do not get Tom back. Do we? I don't think we do.
1: Nope. This is it.
0: So I think it's just, you're, you're uh, a little bit of that, um, the, a little bit of a little dose of, of, you know, twin peaks in 2018 and, uh, The complexity of modern life in a sense or or just the age that we're going through right now
1: it's a surprisingly nuanced portrait of a character that we get just through these little two scenes here like you mentioned she obviously cares for her husband but she clearly has feelings for ben and we can assume she probably feels a little bit conflicted about that on some level as as anybody would and you know, as anyone who has been in a situation like hers, where you are caring for for somebody who is is not well, I think that there is always a certain amount of of guilt associated with that. You know, that you're mm-hmm. not doing enough, or that you know you're not you're not doing it the right way. And I, I just, t- to me, these scenes with Beverly here. And in particular, this scene with with her husband is just a perfect example of something that this show does that I know drove a lot of people crazy, which is foregoing plot in favor of just these really evocative slices of life. You know, like it's, it doesn't have anything to do with Laura Palmer or Dale Cooper or the lodge or mr c it's just a really effective glimpse into somebody's world and it's really memorable and i love that this show is confident enough to just go on these little excursions and show you these characters that aren't germane to the plot but are living these these rich lives nonetheless it's it's that that tendency is one of my favorite things about this season so
0: yeah it, it brings twin peaks the place out a bit more in, in in terms of it's a town there are people living their lives every day and sometimes you get a little snapshot of that and i think it's really it's really nice and it really it helps the pacing of the show
1: 100 i just i love the way that lynch and frost sort of paint paint the corners Of this world with with characters like Beverly, I really enjoy it. Speaking of things that are not germane to the plot, we get the infamous sweeping scene at the roadhouse, which
0: I love this scene.
1: (laughs) Hell yeah, as (laughs) do I. It is it is to this day a a major talking point, and. It goes, on, it goes along for a while. It goes on for about three and a half minutes. Just a guy sweeping. And what I always obsess on anytime I watch it is the fact that while he's doing a great job and everything like that, he misses just like one or two small pieces behind him. And every time I watch it, I just can't help but obsess on just the fact that he missed a spot and just like my inner OCD just starts going wild.
0: I do the same thing. Like I watch cause I love this scene so much because it is immensely satisfying to watch someone sweep. And I personally love sweeping. Like it's just like a very, um, I don't know. I have a weird thing. Like I like sweeping. I like doing dishes. I like, uh, I like tidying things up for some reason, but I, obsessively watching I mean, you want to you want to
1: come over i got some stuff that you could do you know
0: i mean hey I'll, I'll book a ticket right now um but uh his technique is like it's a seven like it's not great his sweep technique i mean i could do a lot better he he has really short strokes, wow shots fired yeah it's just not it's not exactly like like, if I was paying him, I'd be like, dude, you got to sweep in broader strokes, man. You're just like, you're pushing some stuff around that is getting lost. You can walk in behind it. But overall, I mean, it sounds not bad. That's not that's not the worst. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I don't know. It, not for nothing, but green onions in the background. Yep. Yep. Um Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> sure. Booker T. Uh, yeah, Booker T. Washington, that green onions. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. that is. That's a tune that I love. Uh, oh, yeah. Booker T and the MGs. That's right. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I don't know, man. This was a scene that when it came on, me and my roommate watched it for about a minute before, without saying anything. And then he just goes, holy shit. <laughs> 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 just like, yeah, holy shit is right. What is happening right now? But this is another example of um, Twin Peaks The Place. It's like, Hey, at any given moment for 3.5 minutes, someone sweeping peanut shells or whatever that is up at the roadhouse. And, uh, you get to see it <laughs> if you're into that kind of thing, which I really can't tell you why it's so meditative to watch this guy sweep, but it was for me. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm critical where I, where I think I should be about like, you know, what is, I don't know, not, not pretentious, but like what's, what is too long of a shot. It's like, I don't know, man, there's something to this. I don't know what it is, but there is something to three and a half minutes of someone sweeping the green onions.
1: Mm -hmm. It's sort of like when a shot goes on for this long, like if this shot had gone on for like 45 seconds to a minute, you might have said like, okay, the shot's a little too long. But at some point it it crosses a barrier where the length of the shot kind of becomes the point. And it like metamorphosizes into something hypnotic. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yep, it really does. Because you you trip yourself out. You go, wow, this is a long shot. And then it just keeps going beyond where you can say that until the point where you're just watching, criticizing this guy's sweep technique. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you're it, you're. it is.
1: You're very focused on his his mediocre sweeping technique. You're uh, enjoying green onions, and you're distracted by the fact that. Um, apparently Jacques Renault is behind the bar. Which yeah, is just very the- odd. We you see him briefly, I believe in episode two. Some people pointed that out, but he's just he's on screen for a really long time here. And you wonder what the deal is, and then you find out that it is in fact Jean-Michel Renault continuing mm-hmm. in the tradition of weirdly French names i guess maybe they're like supposed to be french canadians from across the border or something like that i don't really yeah know. but
0: french canada is literally on the opposite side of canada yeah it's in, East, it's in montreal it's like yeah it was just not, th- that was just yeah.
1: the most sense that i could make of that and so apparently he's he's like um he's an identical cousin sort of a, like a maddie situation
0: i didn't realize he was supposed to be his cousin yeah because but doesn't yeah. jock have a brother and they we see him Yes. Uh in the when the the Bookhouse Boys interrogate him.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. And so this guy, I believe according to Mark Frost via Twitter, is the identical cousin of uh Jacques Renault. Good. And Good yeah, very strange. And basically the point of this scene is just to establish that the Renault family is still uh Disgusting, and they're all a bunch of scumbags. And he talks about uh, doing some business here involving some blonde underage prostitutes. Mhm. Yep. So and how he yeah. is
0: owed for two? There's some yep. discrepancy in pricing. Apparently.
1: Yeah, and you know their IDs were good, and he didn't know they were underage. Blah 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 blah. So Renault family still gross and criminal. Noted. And from there, we get the aforementioned diner scene at the double R, where David Lynch's son runs in and asks if anyone has seen Billy. Nobody reacts, but the thing that is notable about this is the fact that the the customers are not the same from when the shots change from one side of the double R to the other.
0: Which is fascinating. Uh, really? It is fascinating. fascinating.
1: I'm going to eliminate the possibility that this was just some sort of continuity error because I don't for a second believe that this is like no in the same vein as like the diary stuff. It's too it's too noticeable. It's too pronounced. Like why would they set up like how could they accidentally set up two different shots here? for the same scene with different extras like it just doesn't they make any sense for it to be an act they
0: wouldn't because because it switches between like the first shot you see is one set of people and then it switches to the other side of the room and it is a different set like when you look across the bar it's not those mm-hmm. people so the second cut mm-hmm. is different then you get billy coming in and you see that from the original shot where there's different people and then it cuts over again to the second side and like where, when Billy runs off and it is like a third set, like there's three different shots. There's like, and there's some weird overlap too, where there's like, I know like on the, the second shot, like the one on the right side of the bar where Norma is sitting, there's these three guys, like one in a flannel, one in like a hat and then one in a flannel. And then on the opposite side of the bar there, or I'm sorry, on the other side, like a few seats down, there's a dude in a beard and that's like the second shot you see. And then when they switch back to that angle, those three dudes are still sitting there, but it is like an Asian woman and some, some like white guy who are sitting next to each other who you can see in the first shot. So there's like three different things going on. They would have had to like have filmed that scene three different times because Billy comes in in the middle of all of them or in the middle of two of them. So they've had to like film it a bunch and then put like, it had to be intentional. There's no way it was an error. Um, Yep. And I think it, I think the fact that the, episode ends on this uh is is super notable uh because if it's not at the roadhouse you know it's at this sort of like intersection between versions of twin peaks um Mm -hmm. which i think what the roadhouse is supposed to um or come to comes to represent it is sort of this like axis on which the the timelines of uh, Twin Peaks sort of like rest in and, and Switch. But the later scenes that we get, you know, as, as we keep going down this Billy rabbit hole and getting yep. into Audrey and Charlie's story, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to digging a little into this. And I think it oh, obviously yeah. it must have something to do with Andy as well in, in the whole, um, the whole implication with that guy who may or may not be Billy. Uh,
1: with the stolen truck and all that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, And then again, like how you said, Riley Smith, last time we see him is in the roadhouse. Sorry, Riley Lynch, not Riley Smith, the former uh, right winger of the Boston Bruins. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. Riley Lynch, but yeah, really fascinating decision to, to, to do something like that. And really makes you scratch your head.
1: Yeah, it is fascinating and kind of eerie that this episode ends right here with somebody coming in and asking for Billy and we know obviously from future episodes that Billy is the object of some obsession for Audrey and I one of the most fascinating things in this show is the way that the tentacles of the Audrey story sort of reach out and and touch other things here like specifically the roadhouse where i think it's fair to question the reality of some of the things that 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 happen there it's mm-hmm. not a coincidence that a lot of the people that are mentioned by audrey in her talks with charlie are also mentioned by these mysterious strangers in the roadhouse and we're we're going to talk about this a lot more but I I believe that a lot of what we see in The Roadhouse is, like, sort of a, um how to put it, sort of like um, a psychic extension of what, what's happening in Audrey's mind. You know, The Roadhouse mm-hmm. is a place where she believes that people from her life are, you know, this man that she loves, Billy you know who's not her husband charlie that she's trapped in this loveless marriage with and the fact that this last scene here gets a mention of billy combined with this shifting of reality where we're questioning whether or not what we're seeing is actually real i think is is not an accident either and it's it's all part of this whole audrey webb that you don't even realize that you're, you're watching the first time through. And yep. I, it, it is super interesting to me. And I do I, think that,
0: a, Oh, sorry. Good. No, go good. I was going to say, I do think that the Audrey story has f- way greater implications than you would surmise the first time around because she comes into the series or comes into the season so much later than all the this stuff happens. So it does take, I think, going back like we're doing right now and trying to piece together where's the first time we hear about these things and, like, what is the context that is presented to us in and how does that relate to what we find out about Audrey later. But I do think that there is, like, if if there's anyone who is, you know, like if we're exploring someone's trauma other than Laura Palmer's, it has to be Audrey Horns in the sense that, like, I mean, we don't even have to get too nutty about it, but like if the, if, if she was raped by Mr. C in a coma and presumably she is still in a coma, she may you know have known that that was happening to her internally and have like obviously no external way of expressing it and has constructed this story, this thing, this, this like uh, this, she's constructed a twin peaks in her comatose psyche uh, that features Richard Horn like her her like uh, this terrible offspring result of this awful thing that happened to her while she had ultimately no control and that like all of the terrible events that are happening in Twin Peaks are perhaps a projection of Audrey or at least like in, in Twin Peaks fashion maybe it is actually happening but it is a reflection of this sort of thing related to the trauma of Of Audrey, just like how we get things really do happen in Twin Peaks seasons one and two in the town. But a lot of the stuff thematically is representing to us Lara's trauma and like what she dealt with and how that affected the people that she knew after she was gone and all that stuff. So I don't know exactly the nature of all this Audrey shit, but um, I think that scenes like this one are undeniably linked to it. And I like that you said, like the tentacles of the Audrey's uh, situation touches all of these other things in ways that like, that's almost the the major story that is happening off screen, like mm. t- pretty much totally the whole time that we just get very, very minute, faint glimpses into. Because I think that's probably the most open book of, of The Return is, is Audrey Horn and how she factors into it
1: yeah it really is this kind of like shadow narrative throughout the season right so yeah that does it for us in a really great seventh episode as always you can find us on twitter at 119 podcast you could write into us if you have any thoughts if you want to tell us how wrong we are or explain the laura palmer diary situation you can email us at 119 podcast at gmail.com you can find me at twitter at strenuous orb and you can find dylan at piff dylan. i think we'll, we'll probably skip next week there's not really a ton to talk about um yeah, nbd yeah so you know we'll probably just see you guys at episode nine um but yeah uh <laughs> thanks for joining us uh we we really hope that you're enjoying listening to these episodes we're glad that people are are getting to, to discover this podcast. And uh, we hope you'll join us next week. Thanks a lot, guys. Later. Peace.